Good morning, everyone. So we are starting a series today on knowing God. And it's a three-part series because we're going to take a different tack than, than we've taken before. We're going to try to know God through each of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one week each. Each person of the Trinity of God gives us a different way of interacting with God and a different way of knowing God. And so today is going to be all about God the Father. Now this idea of, uh, this idea of the Trinity of God, this is not easy. That God presents himself to us in three persons. The one God who is three. The three who are one God. This is really, really hard to get one's mind around. In fact, a lot of Christian cults, especially here in America, you know, the the key to a cult is to tell folks a little something they would like to hear and then to steal all of their money. So um, a lot of Christian cults have first begun in America by saying, that Trinity, that's too hard to understand. Let's get rid of that. And and so begins a whole parade of strange beliefs. Um, And they usually start by saying, you know, The Trinity is not taught in the Bible. And I'll agree that the word Trinity does not appear in Scripture. But the concept of the Trinity uh, is presented across pages and pages of the Bible. I could do this all day, but we'll just do a few. We'll just do a few. Um, So if you were to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, you'd find Paul saying this. You'd say, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So here's Paul, this good Jewish rabbi. They were the, the, practically the inventors of monotheism, one God. So Paul says, we have but one God, the Father. Then he can't help himself. And we have one Lord, Jesus Christ. And, but he gives them both the same description. Um, from whom all things came and through whom we live. Both of them. So he, here we have these two who one, and get, they get the same description. Now, so there's two out of the three. Now, if you keep to the same author and just turn over a few pages of 2 Corinthians, he's going to do it again with two, but this time a different two. He says uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So for Paul, the Lord is often how he refers to Jesus Christ. And here he says, the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit is, there is freedom. So now we have another two, but a different two. And then if you turn to the end of 2 Corinthians, we're in the same book, just go to the last verse. He closes this way, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And often Paul begins and ends important things by bringing the whole Trinity of God into focus. We could do that all day. There's dozens of things like that, but I encourage you to read through the New Testament this year and see how many and how often you find the whole Trinity of God suddenly appearing all together. So we're going to go to three different places of knowing today as we focus on God the Father. And the first place we're going to go is over here to the sciences. In all my years of teaching biology, I never got to wear one of these. <laughs> oh, this is fantastic. I feel like Mr. Wizard. All right. So uh, I was trained in biology. I did teach biology uh, for many years before I became a pastor. And so science. In the sciences, we are taught to rely on the scientific method as our way of knowing. How many of you just took finals on the scientific method? 
Okay, uh, there you go. So hope you did well. So remember, the scientific method uh, requires things to be observable, verifiable, and repeatable. Not in that order, though. Observable, repeatable, and verifiable. And that's our way of knowing in the sciences. So can the sciences tell us anything about God? Is God observable, uh, repeatable, and verifiable? I wondered about this. So I had this question. I called my biology professor after I had left school from the church. And I, I asked him this question. I said, uh, professor, but really we just called him Bob. Bob, uh, can... If, suppose God were going to teleport the Statue of Liberty from New York to San Francisco in the middle of the night. He's going to leave it there for one hour, then he's going to teleport it back to New York, and then he was never going to do it again. Could science prove that that was an act of God or even that it happened at all? And my professor said, no. Science could not verify that as an act of God or even that it happened. Because on the observable scale, it would only be observable to people who happen to be in one or the other of those harbors at that specific time. And then it's not repeatable because you just said God's never going to do it again. And so it's not verifiable that it even happened because other observers can't come along and, and verify that that even took place. I said, okay, then here's my question. Does it bother you that something can happen and science is unable to know it? And he said, no, that doesn't bother me at all. And then he said one of the smartest things, and this is what makes a great mentor. He said, because science is only one way of knowing, and it's only a way of knowing certain types of things, and it's not a way of knowing those types of things. I thought that was really smart. There are other ways of knowing things that are worth knowing. Science is good for some of them. Does the scientific method in that way of knowing uh, help us know anything about God? And the answer is yes, because you can study God's creation using science. You can, in the same way you could study a piece of art, and it will tell you something about the artist. In the same way you can study something that has been created and learn something about its creator, you can do that too. If you look at your own human body um, and all the marvels that it's capable of, that I know everybody thinks this is so ugly, and it is. But um, <laughs> winter is coming. Um, so, but... Uh, where were we? And so it's just a way of knowing. It's just one way of knowing. Okay, but you can look at the art and it tells you a lot about the artist. Let's look at the whole universe. And it tells you something about our creator and how he creates. So you can learn something from the scientific method about God. The sciences are also helpful in answering a difficult question that you all have given me every year. And I've actually never addressed it yet because I only get like one or two cards. But by now, I've gotten 20 of this question, and I got it twice this year. Here's your question you asked. If God created everything, then who created God? Right? Well, the sciences actually give us a help with this answer. Now, the answer is that God is the eternal and the uncreated one. That's hard for us to get our mind around because everything we experience from this book to our own body to everything in this room had a beginning. So the idea of calling something the uncreated one, the one with no beginning, we can't quite get our mind around that. But the sciences can actually help, particularly the science of mathematics. For instance, if I say to you, what comes before the number two, you would say one. And what becomes before one? Zero. And what becomes before zero? And before negative one? Can, I, can we ever stop doing this? What comes before negative 100,005? 
And everyone had that. So we can do this forever. There is no number that's first and gives rise to all the numbers. As soon as you say numbers, immediately they exist in eternity in both directions. They are. There is no number that creates and gives rise to any other number. And God is like that. The uncreated one. In fact, if we apply that logic to God, suppose I could answer you. You said, well, then who created God? And I said, oh, that's easy. Bert created God. What would your next question be? Who created Bert? And I say, well, that would be Thelma. And then you would say, created Thelma. And we would do this forever until we finally came to something or someone who was the eternal, uncreated one who has always been. Well, we're basically saying that God is that one, the uncreated, eternal one who has always been. And there are things like him, like numbers in the universe. And we can conceive of that. So science was helpful. Now, that's about as far as we can go with the scientific method for knowing God. And, and let me show you some places where science runs out. Have you ever seen on the Discovery Channel these documentaries, The Science of Love? Have you watched these? The Science of Attraction. They're going to use a scientific method to explain why we have something like love. Okay? And then you sit and you watch this thing for 50 minutes, and at the end you get this horrible conclusion, like the reason why we love each other is because that helps us pass on our genes. I'm like, I have some uncles who didn't love anyone, and they passed on their genes a lot more than I have. (laughs) You get these grotesque conclusions, like the reason why you uh, are attracted to your spouse is because their face is sufficiently symmetrical that you felt comfortable uh, reproducing with them. So it's like, so all that time in high school, I just need to tip my head a little to the right and it would have worked out better for me. I don't, these are terrible. One wonders if the, if the folks who write this stuff have ever actually been in love. Does this explain why I love my aunt? I certainly hope not. Does it explain why I love my dog? Now, folks will say, well, dogs protect family. So to love and care for a dog actually does help you pass on your genes. Okay, then explain why my wife loves a cat. Because that thing's useless. All right. Science is lousy at describing love. It's lousy. It's not a way of knowing where love comes from. It doesn't touch what we experience when we experience love, love of friends, love of of anything. It doesn't touch it. And and, and that explains a lot because you know what? God is love. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we're going to need a different type of knowing to know about the relationship of God. So we're just science was helpful for some stuff, but we're going to leave the lab. We're going to go to church. We're going to go to church. In fact, we were already in church as soon as we opened that Bible because the Bible uh, was created by the church. It was people in church who were writing down the stories that they had seen and heard of what Jesus said and did and taught. It was the church who saved all those letters instead of throwing them away from Peter and Paul and James and John and all the rest. It was even the church that looked at the Old Testament scriptures and said, you know what? We have decided that we are going to keep reading the same stories that the people of God have always read together. 
And the church put together us this library. Now, we think of the Bible as a book because modern printing lets us have it that way. But this is really a library of many writings. This is a rich, um, diverse uh, perspective on God. Uh, if you take the oldest writing to the newest writing, they're 1,400 years apart. That's a lot of historical perspective that we're getting on God. And if you count the oral stories that were told around campfires before they had writing, you can go back another 2,000 years if you'd like. There are 27, at least 27 different authors contributing to this, probably twice that many, working together to give us a perspective on God and things he has done. It's written in two at least different languages, maybe four different languages included here. It comes from half a dozen different countries these writings come from. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading the perspective of all kinds of people. Old sages have writings here, young warriors, uh, poets, priests are included in here, shepherds, fishermen, a medical doctor, kings, former tax collectors, prisoners writing from their cells, half-brothers, a couple of half-brothers of Jesus himself have contributed writings here. And they've contributed all sorts of styles of writing. There's history here, there's law codes, there's essays, there's biographies here, there's personal letters, there's poems, songs, sermons. This is a a, a rich way. And what we come to read this and study these writings is because this shows us the shape of God's love. This shows us the shape of things God has done before so that when we think God is acting in our life, we have something to compare to. Well, that seems a lot like something God would do. Or, I've never heard of God doing anything like that before. That's probably not coming from God. And that's what we get from the story. So last, last uh, Sunday, Pastor Dan got up here and told a story. I hope you're here to hear it. Do you remember the story where he said when he started the church, he said this prayer to God where if after five years the church did not have 200 people in it, that he'd take that as a sign that he shouldn't have started it and he would stop being a pastor. Remember this story? So five years came, and they counted the people, and how many were there? 199. Now, if you've read this story, all of us went, yeah, that's exactly like something God would do. He, he totally loves to do that kind of stuff, where he's like, guess who decides when your calling is over? Not you, me. So I decide when it starts, I decide when it ends. How's 199? I thought you'd stay. All right. So that's exactly like something God would do. And we come to, to church to learn the shape of God's love. And we come to church to study then these stories. Because that's a good, safe place to work through all these writings. Now, I know that you can take this book home and study it. And I know that these days you can turn on the radio or the TV or the internet and have someone else teach it to you. But once you turn that off, once you put it down, then there's no one there to help you with the parts to go deeper about the parts you got really excited about. There's no one there to answer the questions that you didn't quite understand what, what was going on there. There's no one to say, I think you've got it right. I think you've understood it. And there's no one to say, I think you're going down a weird rabbit trail with that one. Maybe, maybe don't do that. So the church who created these scriptures and brought them to us is also the safest place for us to study it and be excited about it and learn from it all here together in community. The church is also where we come then from these pages to know God and to be challenged to know him better. There's all sorts of challenges that we get here um, each Sunday, I hope, when we come. I can give you a few challenges from scripture, just really easy. Like, do you want to know God the Father better? 
Take him seriously. Take him seriously. There's this prayer that you hear sometimes. Pass the taters, pass the meat. Look out, God, we're going to eat. It's funny. But would you pray that if God were sitting across the table from you? Because he is. He always is sitting right across the table from you. You've got to take God seriously. You've got to take God seriously. There's a great uh, scripture here um, on taking God seriously. So they had this Ark of the Covenant. It was this symbol. It was a box, a gold box about this long, about this deep. And uh, yes, the lost Ark from Indiana Jones, same one. It was real. And so they had this Ark and it symbolized God's presence, God's presence among them. And it was a holy object. God said, don't touch it as a reminder that this is a symbol of God and God's not manhandled by people. Like you don't tell him 200 people and I'm done. So, you know, he's God. So don't touch it. That was their symbol of its holiness. Well, so they they would move it from place to place because God always wanted to be in the middle of their camp. Well, they just moved their camp and it was time to move the ark. And so they put the ark on an ox cart and they start dragging it to its next location. And here's what happens on the way. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah reached out his hand and studied the ark. Then the Lord's anger aroused against Uzzah, because you're not supposed to touch it. And God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark. Now we read that story and we think, that was really crummy of God. You know, they're just trying to carry the symbol of his presence from place to place. They have an accident. This gold box about to fall off the cart. And so the priest stumbles it, but because you have a rule, you can't touch it. He gets killed. That's really crummy of God. But we're not reading the story, really. Because there was a way to carry the ark. The ark had gold rings on each side of it. And these 15-foot poles crafted in the days of Moses. And you fed the poles through the rings. And then 12 men, right, one from each tribe, put it on their shoulders. And they walked together, carrying the presence of God, all the tribes, taking God seriously, taking this symbol seriously to its next destination. Well, these guys said, I don't want to get 12 guys together and carry it on. Just put it on an ox cart. Let some animal drag it to the next place. Then the animal, of course, has an accident. This guy now has to reach up and stumble it and stop it. Or we blame God. But they weren't taking God seriously. So often, this is what we do. We don't take God seriously. We run our life any old way we want to, slop through it. And then when it turns out badly and something terrible happens, we blame God that that happened. We've got to take God seriously. Now, I've visited all of your Instagram and Twitters and Facebooks. And I've got several of them that I, I want to put up on the screen here for discussion. I'm not, but how many of you puckered? <laughs> Are you taking God seriously? If we had a videotape of what you did with your friends in the last week, would it say this is someone who takes God seriously? I got to think about that one. <laughs> is this someone who takes God seriously? You want to know God the Father? Take him seriously. You want to know God the Father better this week? Invite him. Invite him. Uh, Revelation has this wonderful invitation. Chapter 3, verse 20. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus is knocking at the door. 
and he's ready to come in. He says, invite me in. What's that look like? Today, you could pray a prayer that says, God, I really haven't been taking you very seriously. Or I've done all kinds of stuff for you, but not very much with you. Lord, if you want to come into my life and reveal yourself to me in a way that I've not seen before, I'm open to that. I'll pay attention. I'll take the time. I invite you, God. If you want to know God the Father, invite him because he's right there at the door knocking. You've heard the knock. You want to know God the Father better this morning? Trust him. I don't have to go to the Bible for this one because I had to memorize this many years ago to keep my head straight. Trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You know what that means? It means whatever it was that had you so ate up you could hardly listen to the worship songs today. You've got to trust God with that. Whatever it is right now that you can't control, you can't fix, you can't make it better, you've got to trust God with that. You've got to say, God, I'm going to do this your way, even though your way scares me to death because I trust you. Lord, I can't control that. I can't make this person do what I want. I can't make them do what's right. Lord, I have to give them to you. I have to trust you to carry them and take them on that journey because if I keep trying to control this and manage this, I'm going to make myself crazy plus everyone around me. So, God, I trust you with this. I have to. I have no other choice. I don't have the power. Trust him. You want to know God the Father and see him at work? Trust him. And if you really want to know God the Father, another challenge we could give is to wait on him. Wait on him. A lot of times we trust him like this. God, I give this to you. Okay, I'm just going to take that back. I, it's just one more try. So you got to wait on him. you got to wait on him. Uh, there's a great story of waiting on God in 1 Kings. Elijah, the prophet, he's in the fight of his life. Elijah, uh, 1 Kings, rather, 19, verse 10. Elijah says, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? The conversation with God begins. He's in fear of his life, and he has to hide in this cave, and there's this dramatic windstorm. He has to wait on God through that. And then there's an earthquake, and caves are a terrible place to be in an earthquake, but he has to wait on God for that. And then there's a fire, and God's not in that fire. He has to wait until this still, small voice, the gentle whisper, comes. Last year, someone uh, came up and said to Ashley, now, your wife, you and your wife, You guys have a talent for finding these used cars that are really reliable but super cheap. You guys have a talent for that. To which I said, ha, 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 ha. (laughs) 
let me tell you about my wife and I's talent for finding cheap, reliable cars. So a car breaks down. We immediately take to Craigslist. Craigslist introduces us to every crook and swindler in town. Some of the neighborhoods we go to to look at these cars make us fear for our life. But we always try to take these cars back to our mechanic to look over to see if they are sound. 25% of these cars can't even make it to the mechanic. 25% of the cars, once they get there, he says, this transmission is being propped up with synthetic this or that is, is, is shot. 25% of the cars have been in a serious wreck and have been painted and patched together to look like they weren't. And the other 25% of the cars have been sitting underwater in a flood zone somewhere. That leaves us no more percent. <laughs> so we do this every night for two weeks until my wife and I are exhausted. Our mechanic is cranky with us because this is a free service, you know, the first 14 times. And then we finally, one of us would look at the other one and say, we're just going to have to wait on God for this. We can't do this anymore. We just got to wait on God for this. So we pray, God, if you would just bring us an honest person with some reliable transportation that we can afford. And immediately, God does nothing. <laughs> nothing. So then we just limp along, a family of four in one car, usually for a couple of weeks till we're good and settled that we are waiting on God. And then this story comes to us. You know, an elderly woman wants to sell her 96 Oldsmobile for $2,000, but it only has 27,000 miles on it. And my wife cried. She said, you'll drive that ugly car forever with that few miles. <laughs> a single mom has just inherited her grandmother's car, so she just doesn't need two cars. So she's selling her Honda. It's in great shape, only has 80,000 miles. She just doesn't need two cars, and grandma's car was the better one. And we thank God. We thank God. You want to know God and really see him at work and how much time he has to pay attention to you and the things that concern you? Wait on him and see what he does. When you, when you do these things, you, you take him seriously, you invite him, you trust him and you wait on him. Then you find this God who's all powerful and yet has time to pay attention just to you. And, he's, and he, he comes when you invite him. And he's faithful to your trust. And when you wait on him, he shows you, gives you just what you need at just the right time. So when you take these challenges from scripture, then we leave this worship service and we go home. <sighs> this is where you really want to know God the Father. This is where you really need this all the work. This is home. This is work. This is where you spend most of your time. If you want to know God the Father here, the first thing I would say is don't make too much of a wall of separation between this worship service and this home. The same community that gave you the scriptures and studied the scriptures with you here can also do that with you here. You can join a small group and be in the same community and learn about the love of God in this place. You can uh, do kid activities with folks from church. Your kids all like each other. They're all playing in campfire right now. They probably love to get together. You can go on trips together once you get to know each other. You can do vacations together. When you have a home project, you can work on it together. You can keep that community alive and that wisdom and that gift that God has given us and the safety of community. You can keep all that and just bring it, bring it home with you. It's available to you. And don't just pray here in the worship service. Pray here. This chair is really comfortable. 
If you like this chair and you like the window it's sitting in front of, then, then just sit here for 20 minutes after work or 20 minutes before you go to bed and just pray about all that stuff that you're inviting God and trusting God and waiting on God for and just pray here. And listen for his leadings, leadings to, you know, do things. How will you know if that's from God or if that's just you? That's hard. That's hard. But if you think you've got a leading, follow it. Follow it. If it leads you toward greater patience, greater uh, peace, greater trust in God, greater love, then it was from God. If following that leading makes you more controlling, more anxious, more fearful, then that wasn't from God. Go back to the chair, pray again, start over. That's not too hard. And always in this chair, remember that God is Father, especially on this part of the Trinity. In fact, Jesus said to call him Abba. And Abba is an Aramaic word. That language is still alive. You can still hear Abba spoken on the streets of many countries in the Middle East by children. Because Abba doesn't mean father, it means daddy. That's what little bitty kids call their daddies. Abba, Abba. And that's what Jesus said we should call our God. Kids. Man, kids will mess you up. they mess up your head. Let's talk about my kids. Got one right there. My kids, I have this spectacular chore chart. It is amazing, is it not? They don't do half of it unless they like really need money. And they do pretty good in school, really happy with what they did this year, but they don't organize their papers the way I would. I'm super good. I rock school. If I could just stay in school forever, that would be an awesome universe for me. So, but they don't, they don't do it like I do it. But when my daughter calls me daddy, I am melted. Well, my son at 15 still hugs me before bedtime. I am slain. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because love matters more than vacuuming the floor. And love matters more than turning in all your assignments and getting all A's. You guys already know this. I know this. I mean, we're sinful people, but we're not monsters. Only monsters would do things like, uh, until you do all your chores, I'm not showing you any love. That's creepy. Until you make straight A's, I'm not opening up to you. That's not a... Some people have parents like that. Some of you had parents like that, right? And you're paying for all that counseling now. So... That's not good. We're sinful people. We, we can do better than that. Well, Jesus, Jesus had something to say about that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, he says, So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? If you can figure out that love matters more than performing everything right, don't you think God figured that out a little ahead of you? We've got to get this picture out of our head that God is some angry dad stomping around. And until you get it right, no love. We've got to get that out of our head. We've got to get rid of that. Does God want more holiness from us? Yes, because holiness is good for us. And does God want less sin from us? Absolutely, because sin is bad for us. 
But when we call him Abba, Daddy, he is melted. And that's not his weakness, that's his strength, because God is love. And love matters more than all that stuff. That's where his mercy and his forgiveness come from, from his love. This is a third space we've gotten to God's love. That's no accident. And when we really get that love of God and who he is into our identity or how we look at him, then our journey into knowing God can really get started. Because then we find out, even when we do do something that's good, even when we do defeat a sin in our life, we learn that wasn't even us. That was the power of God's Holy Spirit working through us. When we invited him to come into our life, that's who came, God the Holy Spirit. He makes us want to be good and gives us the power to do it. So even that came from God. So if you really want to know God the Father, you've got to get to know God the Holy Spirit, which we're going to do next week on Pentecost Sunday. And if you need a little more proof that God is not this angry dad stomping around saying you've got to get it right or else, look no further than Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to show us what God is like. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, I wish we all memorized the next verse. For God did not come to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Oh, man. You really want to know God the Father, you've got to get to know God the Son, which we'll do in two weeks. So we came to the science lab and we found that we can study the art to learn about the artist, the creator and the creator. Science did help us understand how God can be the eternal, uncreated one. Because some things, like God, have no origin or beginning. They are. But science didn't help us much with love and that's the key part of God. So for that, we went to church. The church gave us the scriptures and the story to learn the shape of God's love all together. And receive challenges like take him seriously and invite him and trust him and wait on him. And then armed with that, we came home, turn off the light, and continue to live in community here, to pray, to follow God's leading, to know always that God is daddy who loves us forever and ever.